Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This month's program, entitled Racked and Ruin, is sponsored by The Portalist and features the music of Diego's Umbrella. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our heroes, they were wrestling with the moral conundrums of transmigration. Though the doctor, the professor, and Mix Entwistle were in absolute agreement over the question of appropriating the work of future scientists, that one point of confluence seemed of little matter when all else was in argument. What I am attempting to explain, dear Abigail, is the sheer stupidity of letting technologies die that do not have to. We have settled on rule number three. No technology nor knowledge thereof can be utilized prior to the point of its original inception. That says nothing about resurrecting technologies that were lost via accident or calamity. But I think we need to weigh everything against the structure of rule number one. No transmigratory scientist shall knowingly interfere with the course of history. I do not see how bringing past knowledge into our present can interfere in history, just because it might possibly change the future. Oh, hello, Erasmus. Help me convince Abigail in an argument, won't you? Hello, pet. I don't like taking arms against our mech's entwistle. She usually has the right of things. I'm not asking you to take arms. Thank you, Professor. I'd simply challenge you to think. What if we can perfect targeting well enough to send you back before the sacking of the library at Alexandria? Wouldn't it be a service to history to resurrect those lost texts? Any archaeologist worth his soul would give his eye teeth to have a keek at those books, yes. There. You see, Abigail? But wouldn't that counter the stricture laid out? In rule number two, no knowledge gained through transmigration to the past or future can be manipulated for personal gain. That is my point exactly. I'm not talking about getting rich off of that knowledge, just reviving what was lost. Imagine the changes to mathematics alone. I do not deny the attraction of such things, Petra, but I agree with Abigail. We must err on the side of caution. When and if we do have a chance to see the lost texts of Alexandria... We must consider any and all ramifications of gaining lost knowledge. Thank you, Professor. Careful consideration is all I'm proposing here. Uh, so, what wonderful adventures are we heading towards today? You aren't transmigrating today. We have that paper to prepare for Max Cunningham on your cadaver research. He's been putting a lot of pressure on me. I'm sorry, Abigail, but thanks to the demands in the history department, Erasmus has hardly been available since our return from the future. Really, I promise, we won't be gone long. I'll finish the paper when we get back. That could be days away. Uh, no, we're going to make it a short trip. Petra, I don't believe we can promise that. You know how these things are. On some trips, death seems to wait for us outside every door. 
But on others... Unless you've decided to finally test the plausibility of using suicide as an exit tactic? No. I still do not trust that our consciousnesses would continue after suicide. What keeps us alive in transit? Some part of that might be the shock of sudden and violent death. And yet... What if, as Monsieur Descartes posited, we only exist because we believe we do? Then what should our consciousnesses make of an attempt at self-immolation? No, we really cannot risk suicide. Well, then, how could he assume you will return in a short time? Because I'm sending us to one of the most battle-stained eras of history, the early 19th century. No matter who nor where we are, we should be able to find a battle to participate in, hastening our demise without the expediency of suicide. Well, I hadn't anything on for this weekend, though I must say, I do wish we were not returning to war. To an outsider, it may appear rather dashing to die in a sword fight, but from the inside... It is not nearly as glamorous. The point is not specifically to go to war, but to successfully predict and control our trajectory. I'm very keen to understand the mechanism of place, but it makes no real sense to try and pin down the where of it before I've established control of when I am sending us. Once I can reliably say we will go to this year and that month, I can then begin to concentrate on where we go. But that will mean many trips in short order using only slight variations in the pitch. Precisely. If I transmigrate multiple times over the summer term, but only within a narrow band of pitch, harmonics, and amperages, the self-imposed limiting factor should help us isolate the projection patterns and allow us to begin creating a map. Oh, so we're to map the great wilderness of time travel. Capital. We're not exactly Lewis and Clark. And I am certainly not Sakakawea. But won't it be nice to be able to say, we're going to 1756, and to actually wake up in 1756? Oh, but... Then what need will you have of my modest skills? Do not play the card of false humility with me, dear friend. It is your specific knowledge of time and location that I'm relying on to create our map. You recognize fashion, language, tools, and implements, all things I am blind to. You know quite well that I couldn't get on without you. And so, the professor and the doctor dress in their Faraday armor, belt themselves into place, and begin the routine that has become so familiar to us. Can the doctor learn to pilot an exact trajectory through time? Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, May 14th, 1894. Today we are beginning a series of journeys focused on pinpointing our location in time. Over the summer term, I intend on returning repeatedly to times that fall within a narrow band of pitch, harmonies, and electrical amperage in an attempt to pinpoint individual years and perhaps even months within the historical calendar. Transmigrating with me, as always, is my dear friend and colleague, Professor Erasmus Savant. The pitch for the Cladney is set to E-flat, and the amperage is at 120. This will be the first instance of targeting the early 19th century since we have added the prayer bowl to the mechanism. Of particular note will be the efficacy of the harmonics in helping us control trajectory. Abigail, we shall return on the morrow, but I do not feel it necessary for you to remain over the weekend. Once you've completed your usual observations on our departure, you may go and enjoy the time away. Just lock us in as you leave. I shall. 
I will even turn off the lamp in the outer laboratory. <laughs> Thank you, dear girl. Are you ready, Erasmus? As I'll ever be, pet. We are away, then. Where and in which battle will our time travelers end up? We'll find out after this short musical break. Now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the gypsy rock musical outpourings of Diego's Umbrella. In a town made of earth and bone And I can hear him cry revenge Gnashing his teeth as a metal bend So hoist that rag and climb the wall I want to be there when the statues fall Take me with, baby, I can ride I'll take the gun on the passenger side Take this city, take this town Take the earth from the ground Take the steel, take the crown But you'll never... You'll never take us down And you'll never, you'll never take us down And you'll never, you'll never take us down And now, 
Back to our story. When last we saw our heroes, they were venturing into the vastness of time and space once again, targeting the battle-prone era of the early 19th century in hopes of a quick death. It is strange to speak of such things so off-handedly, but seeking quick death is the only honest description of the doctor's intentions. Unfortunately, the universe does not respond well to glibness, and instead of a quick death in battle, the doctor awakens to this. Enculé! Did not tell me I should not drink this wine? I shall drink as I please. We have been left to perish here on this godforsaken raft on this godforsaken sea. Who is there? It is nothing, man. You are killing things. Drink your wine. Jean Charles, is that you? We thought you were lost for certain. How long have you been hanging on like that? Ow, 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 that's my arm. It's caught in the rope. So that is how you get from drowning. Very smart, man. Or very stupid. Perhaps you would have done better to die in the embrace of Mother Ocean. Philippe, take his arm from the side there and pull his wrist free from the ropes. complaining about? Oh, those cretins that left us behind. Even their cry, Vive le Roy, did nothing to recall them to their duties. Though we don't hold that against you, Jean-Charles. It was a good idea. Had any of them had a true French bone in their bodies? <coughs> French? Are we near France, then? Are you delirious, Jean-Charles? We are near Senegal. We have been wrecked. A shipwreck? Are there any other members of our crew that expired in the shipwreck? It was not that shipwreck that caused our problem, but that canard, Captain Chamoray. He promised that the boats would throw us through the storm to save harbor. But the wind took their courage and they cut us loose in the storm. Many men washed overboard in the waves. Don't you remember? Overboard? What if someone else is holding on like I was? Can we check? What is wrong with you, Jean-Charles? You're in the only place on this raft where you could rope in. There is no one left. Those that went overboard are drowned or taken by the sharks now. It was a miracle the sharks didn't take you. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, perhaps the salt water has rattled my brain. Is there... is there water? No, the water casks were placed in the boats. We have wine. A uh, uh, food? Most of it is swamped. Salt water tainted. Who is guarding what supplies we do have? No one is guarding them. What is there to guard? Is this your first time being shipwrecked, boys? Men can do some pretty awful things in extremis. Such as governors and officers deserting their men to the harsh mercy of the sea. That and more. Help me get organized. We need to take stock of the wine and the food. We need to set rations. What dad made you guard? Felipe's assessment is closer to truth than he knows, but still, these are men trained to the voice of discipline and order. When an authoritative figure such as the doctor begins to force them into patterns of behavior by will, they generally respond well. Louis, why aren't those men moving? They had their feet crushed by the boards of the raft, shifting during the storm. Will they live past the injury? That is doubtful, sir. You do not have to call me Sir Louis. I'm just John Charles. It would be better, however, if we put these men out of their misery. Do we have any knives aboard? You mean to kill our fellows? Will you join those who will feast on their flesh? No, Louis, I will not practice cannibalism, but we do not have enough rations to share with men who will die from their injuries. Better to gift them with a swift good night. I agree with Jean-Charles, Louis. The blood from these men is attracting sharks. 
Let's have them overboard and be done with it. We shall not put them into the water alive. That would be a cruelty. So what do you suggest, oh gentle one? If you drive a knife up into the brain through the basilar artery at the base of the skull, you can cause a hemorrhagic stroke, leading to a quick and relatively painless death. Zutagir! You're giving me the creep, Jean Charles. You lie awake in your armor, plotting ways to kill people? Uh, my uncle was a physician. He used to tell me the most horrible ways people can die, and the least painful. These men are our shipmates. I believe they deserve a swift and painless death. Louis, you fill a tankard with wine. Come, Philippe. If you and Louis offer wine to the men and talk to them, I can dispatch them from behind quickly and with little fuss. We shall look away, dear listeners, for no matter the logic of the good doctor's conclusions, the sad reality is one we do not wish to expose ourselves to. It is my uncomfortable duty to inform you that at this moment in time, we have no idea where the professor is. Though we do have the doctor's notes and transmigratory logs, two of the wax cylinders associated with this occasion have been broken and the data they contained lost. As such, in order to transmit the happenings to you, the Chargé du Fer have put agents in the field who are issuing real-time reports to this office. The upshot is, we will find out what has happened to the professor when the doctor does, and not a moment sooner. For my part, I am made most uncomfortable by this lack of information. So, let's turn our attention to the laboratory and mix Entwistle's discovery of the lack of brevity in this excursion. Hello? Doctor? How is your... Oh, now here it is. Monday morning and you're not even back like you promised. Whatever am I to do with you, Dr. Petronella Sage? Abigail bustles about, checking the connections and the state of each body, ensuring that all is well with the doctor's and the professor's earthly shell. Well, right then, all's in order. What shall I tell Max Cunningham? Perhaps I should write the history department as well? Dr. Baker, Professor Erasmus Savant will be unable to attend his lectures this week due to the expediency of a country wedding that he was compelled to attend at last minute. I am sure you can understand that family obligations require the utmost discretion in order to avoid the hint of scandal, and the professor kindly requests your help in this matter. With great regard... Dame Evelyn Savant. There. That should do it. Now to write the same letter for Petronella. What was her father's title again? Abigail believes she is helping by creating a valid excuse for her friend's absence. Unfortunately, the vagaries of the English language, coupled with the overblown fantasies of the letter's recipients, will cause them to reach a far different conclusion than McSentwistle's innocent, discreet wedding of a royal cousin imagining. Back on the raft, the mortally injured have all been quietly and neatly dispatched, but that leaves still more able-bodied men than provisions, and after being cut free from the boats, being tossed about like a cork in a bottle during a storm, and watching their fellows being cold-heartedly cast into the arms of the deep, 
the remaining crew are dividing into factions with murder in their eyes. Why should Jean Charles get to decide everything? Because Jean Charles is a survivor, and I want to survive too. Look, we have been adrift on eight days now. The wine is running low, the raft is barely out of the water, and you lot are hogging all the dry parts. We are protecting the provisions for all of us. Haven't we been doling them out equally? Haven't you got your share? My share is not enough, and I don't believe that you have been taking only the same paltry amount. I would not if I were you. We are sick of this. Give us the rest of the wine. Give us the wine. Attack! A group of men, ragged, parched, covered in salt sores, surge towards the center of the raft. The doctor and her cohorts fight back, defending the dwindling provisions. It is a vicious fight in close quarters on the wobbly deck of a raft. Bodies fall, jaws are cracked, the doctor gets stabbed in the thigh. Ouch! Mon, do that stings! Finally, they have vanquished the attackers. Most have fallen away into the sea, but a few bodies litter the deck at the doctor's feet. Codswallop, why does this body need to be so good in a fight? I could have taken my end just there and returned to the laboratory. We did it, Jean-Charles. We beat them back. Oh, yes, yes, we did it. Help me get these breeches off, will you? You are stabbed. Yes, and I need to bind the wound. Here, give me your knife. All right. Now, help me wind that tight around the thigh. That's it. Nice and snug. All right. Tie it off. Where is Louis? I am here, Jean-Charles. Just cleaning the trash off the deck. Those men were not trash, Louis. They were our shipmates. How many of us are left now? The 28, Jean-Charles. Call everyone over, will you, Philippe? Vinici, you lot. Jean-Charles wishes to speak with you. So what is up, Jean-Charles? You think you are our captain now? No, I am not your captain. But what I am is a man who sees reality. This was the third fight for territory since we landed on this blighted raft. I want the fighting to stop. That can't help but notice that each time we fight, it lightens the load and the raft rides higher in the water. If we are to catch the drift and be propelled to the shore, we need to rise a bit more. I say we take out some more of La Salord. There was nothing the doctor could do to stop the slaughter, so she joined the melee intending to be one of the vanquished. Instead, at the end of it, another 13 men had been sacrificed, and the doctor was still standing. Jean-Charles really did have magnificent reflexes, and the body's self-preservation instinct overrode the doctor's desire for death. We are 15 now, Jean-Charles. That was unnecessary. We are men, not monsters. We are survivors. That is what is necessary. You see how the raft has risen? Now we will be light enough to catch the current. Now we have some chance of surviving. If we are light enough to catch the current, then we will have no more need of weapons. I vote that we cast our swords and knives into the sea as a pledge of good faith that there will be no more killing. We will swear an oath. An oath of unbreakable friendship. We are the survivors. We are the ones that beat death. And so, the surviving 15 members of the crew of the Meduse suffered on their raft for a total of 15 days before they were rescued by the Argus on the 17th of July, 1816. Had it not been for the encounter with the Argus, all 15 would have been lost. 
They were taken to the port of St. Louis in Senegal to recover, and there the doctor lay, wreathed in pain from a severely infected wound and suffering from a near-terminal case of dehydration. Hello. Might I get some water? I'm sorry, sailor. I'm under strict orders not to administer food or drink until the surgeon has had a chance to check on your status. My status is that I am severely dehydrated and suffering sepsis in this wound that may already have turned to gangrene. Water will not hurt the latter and it can only help the former, so get me a drop to drink. You are not allowed to order me about as some scullery maid. I am a nurse here and you will show me some respect. I am sorry, nurse. I meant no disrespect, but I am parched. Might I not at least have a flannel cloth soaked in water to ease the chapping of my lips? Oh, well, I suppose I might do that. The grudging care of the nurse aside, the body in which the doctor found herself was fighting desperately to stay alive. Between the incessant burning and occasional bouts of delirium caused by the spreading red lines of infection, the doctor attempted to find the whereabouts of the other survivors. She was hoping that the boats would have arrived and would carry some word of her professor. Are there any other survivors from the rack besides we fifteen, I mean? Eleven, you mean? Eleven? Yes. I am sorry to tell you that four of your fellows from the raft have passed. I am sorry to hear that, uh, but I am asking about the fellows that stayed on the ship or those that took the boats to shore. They had the captain and the governor with them. Surely there's been a search. All the boats arrived before you. Oh, thank goodness. Tell me, uh, can you ask if any of the gentlemen are named Erasmus? I have a good friend that I've been separated from. I will ask on the morrow. But not before all the poor injured parties are asleep and the hale ones away to their beds. You must rest now. The doctor will arrive to tend to you soon. Petronella slept fitfully until her repose was interrupted by a brusque and odiferous mustache wearing a disheveled and dissolute face shook her from her dreams. John Charles, awake man and tell me your business. Oh. Uh, sepsis, severe dehydration, heat stroke. I need water and lemon juice, iodine wash, cautery blades, reorsin. A bowl of oatmeal would not go amiss either. Who do you think you are to tell me my business? Uh, trust me when I say I am a man who knows something about the medical arts. I am tired, I am thirsty, and I just want some care. Is that too much to ask? It has been far too long of a day for that particular brand of uppityness, I tell you. Nurse! Yes, doctor? Pour some iodine on that leg. Give this man a glass of water and leave him for the morning. I'm far too tired for this. Well, now you've gone and done it. Dr. Markley does not like having his judgment questioned. But I will get you that glass of water. The nurse returned in a few moments with a very small glass of water and a very large bottle of iodine with which to drench the suppurating wound. <sighs> oh, blessed saints, that is good. Might I have some more? You shouldn't drink more until tomorrow. It will upset your stomach. A bellyache is the least of my worries. Oh, you will remember to ask amongst the other survivors for me tomorrow, won't you? Ask for Professor Erasmus Savant. I will remember. This is going to sting. The nurse did remember to ask, but Jean-Charles did not live to know it. 
The infection in his wound, the dehydration, and Dr. Sage's loneliness in this strange place combined to prove too much at last for the body she inhabited. She transmigrated back to the lab, where she found a very distracted Abigail waiting for her. Water! Water! The doctor is insensible, but fortunately, since the night two weeks ago, when she discovered that the transmigrators had not returned on schedule, Abigail has been keeping vigil. She is currently in the outer laboratory, practicing with the cadaver arm. Doctor! What is it? What's wrong? Water. I need water. Oh, thank you, Abigail. Is Erasmus... Professor Svon. He seems to have not returned. What do you mean, not returned? I- I'm not even sure he transmigrated. But he did. The transmigration went as normal, and both of you vacated your bodies per procedure. That cannot be true. Well, he wasn't on the raft with me. He did not... Where is he? Calm down, Dr. Sage. Is there any chance you were just separated by a few metres of space? As you were in New York when he was the chauffeur out in the carriage whilst you were inside that place of ill repute. It was a speakeasy. Oh, the boats... He must be on the boats. The boats? When I awoke, I was in the body of a Moorish sailor, adrift on a raft off the coast of Senegal. The sailors were complaining of the lash who'd just cut us loose. Cowards who cut you loose? I'm afraid I don't understand. There's no time for that, Abigail. I need you to dash to the history department. I need to know about a shipwreck, a French naval shipwreck off the coast of Senegal in the early years of the 19th century. But I don't understand... Whatever can be... I don't need you to understand. I need you to get me the information I require. Go. As Abigail runs to get the required information, our doctor checks her friend's vital signs and condition. Where are you, Erasmus? While the doctor and her assistant struggle to understand what has become of the professor, we must leave them to their search and pause for a word from our sponsor. The Portalist is a haven for science fiction and fantasy fans. They value imagination and science equally, and welcome all who are curious, passionate, and eager for an uplifting, inclusive view of the universe. Check their website daily for their unique take on everything from pop culture and books to science and the future of our species. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter, and sign up for their newsletter to get top stories delivered weekly to your inbox. As a special treat for Sage and Savant listeners, The Portalist is offering a free copy of Oshin McGann's Merciless Reason to everyone who signs up for their newsletter. Get your copy at theportalist.com slash hello-sage-and-savant-listeners. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. For stories that take you to another world, look for The Portalist. And now, back to our show. When we left the doctor, she was checking the vitals of her dearest friend as her young assistant ran to find historical information that might allow them to piece together the professor's whereabouts. The doctor has changed out of her Faraday armor and into a simple tea gown as she pours over the readouts from the CRAP helmets. Oh, there you are. 
Is the professor okay? Yes, as far as I can tell. What did you find out? A French frigate named the Meduse beached on the bank of the Arguin in the summer of 1816. Any others? Oh, no. This is your ship. How can you be so sure? We must examine any other potential shipwrecks in the area over a span of, say, 20 years. I'll say again, the Meduse is your ship. In fact, I might go so far as to say she's rather famously so. What is that? I believe it is a pictorial representation of you. Or, more specifically, of you, stranded on a raft off the coast of Senegal, wearing a Moorish body. The Raft of the Meduse by Jean-Louis Theodore Garacol. This over-life-size painting depicts a moment from the aftermath of the wreck of the French naval frigate Meduse, which ran aground off the coast of Senegal on 2nd July 1816. On 5th July 1816, at least 147 people were set adrift on a hurriedly constructed raft. All but 15 died in the 13 days before their rescue, and those who survived endured starvation and dehydration and practiced cannibalism. Was I correct? Is this you? Did you actually eat your fellows to survive? Well, yes, this must be me. Or at least it is John Charles, the name of the man whose body I was inhabiting. And, And no, I did not practice cannibalism. I stayed on that raft by my wits, not by brutality. I meant no disrespect, Doctor. But, I mean, I believe the, the human actions in extremis are worthy of study, don't you? This was certainly an extreme situation. How do we have a lithograph of this painting? Theodore Garakol was uh, one of the first scientists to use a lithography in his work, I suppose. Uh, yes. Okay, fine. Close that up, will you? I've just lived through it. I do not need to see it from the outside. Was it as bad as it looks in the painting? It was both worse and better. We were only 15 by the day we were rescued. The bodies of our dead were thrown into the sea, mostly. The majority of the raft actually was underwater a good part of the time, so it was only safe near the center. The strong ones fought to stay in the center. Were were you one of the strong ones? I was. Now... Where is the historical account of the shipwreck? I must try and determine what has happened to our friend. And so, the doctor turns her attention to finding her friend. Will she be successful? We'll find out in part two of this season finale episode, coming in two weeks. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Special guest star for episode 12 is Justin Andrew Hoke. Find more from him at dreadfullypunk.com. Episode 12, Part 1, Racked and Ruin, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical information we included in this episode? Go to our website for additional facts. Theme music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was provided by Diego's Umbrella. Check them out at diegosumbrella.com. Our episode sponsor was The Portalist. Check them out at theportalist.com. 
Catch our website at sageandsavant.com and like us on Facebook to stay current with all things Sage and Savant. And remember, death is no barrier to science.